The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm Rob Moyer, Director of the Ocean River Institute, and I'd like to invite you to join us in today's dialogue to discover how, by listening to individuals and thinking locally, through dialogues and acting in concert with others, you can act to save ecosystems. You can act to bring about a greener and bluer planet Earth. Now, I like the term ocean river, which I uh, found being used by Homer and Carson, because it speaks to systems thinking. Oceans and rivers are overlapping ecosystems, lacking in clear boundaries, and they're seamlessly connected. They rise and fall, ebb and flow together. The waves of the otter and the salmon are not restricted to one river or portions of estuaries or oceans. To them and other animals, the ecosystem are one. And if we are to manage better, we must not think in boxes and bounded spaces. We must recognize how dynamic and changing systems really are. And we must think systemically and look for interconnections and expect the unexpected links and influences. So today, my guests, we're going to be talking about um, northeast rivers and dams and salmon mostly in the state of Maine. Uh, my guests tonight, today, are Don Hudson, who's president of Chewankee in Wiscasset, Maine, and Dr. Pyotr Pesarevich, who is uh, of the Rushing River Institute. And later, Dave Wilmot, Ocean Champions, will join us for an update. Um, you're welcome to call us in or send me an email at rob uh, at oceanriver.org uh, and join the conversation with us. Uh, before we move to the conversation, I've got a couple of duck and paddle notes that I'd like to share of what the Ocean River Institute has been learning by listening locally. Uh, two items is, one is that the mussels in Washington State, you know, the, the sea animals, have been found to be suffering from seasonal upwelling water becoming too acidic. And seawater, as you know, is increasing in acidity when rising carbon in the atmosphere diffuses back into the surface waters. And while it's difficult to graph ocean acidity on a linear graph because the levels are logarithmic, um, when signs do do that, they get the same hockey stick upward graph that we see of the atmospheric carbon levels going up. So the nor these northwest mussels are the first documented case of an animal that is suffering other than pteropods that are suffering from acidification. Uh, and I'm worried that uh, these will not be the last animals that start to fizzle in increasing carbonated seawaters. Uh, so that's another reason why we need to all work together to reduce our carbon footprints. The other duck and paddle item is that in the northeast corner of the Caribbean Sea, the Virgin Islands 
uh, Environmental Council has come together in the British Virgin Islands to challenge in court international corporate greed huggers who plan to destroy the last undisturbed ecosystems there. And this is the first of people standing up for Caribbean nations' natural resources. Now, here's the situation. The former BVI chief minister traveled to Hong Kong to give away Beef Island. He went on to pass a law stating that BVI's environmental laws could be disregarded, including destruction of a marine protected area. The mega developers have spent millions of dollars planning their takeovers. They have no idea that this little island attached by bridge to Tortola is on the threshold between the Atlantic Ocean and Sir Francis Drake Passage into the Caribbean Sea, and that this very same island, Beef Island, once thwarted 17th century Spanish galleons. Beef Island is where they raised the beef for passing ships back then, and French cowboys live there <laughs> uh, barbecuing the beef to make jerky suitable for long voyages. And the French word for those who barbecued the beef on this very shore is buccaneer. And what followed when the BVI locals were offered miserly payments for smoked meats by the corporate ships passing by is the stuff of legends. So in short, all the Spanish ships were made to sail further to Hispaniola or Barbados to avoid BVI. So having put the wrong-headed developers on a defense, the Ocean River Institute must now raise more funds to bring London-based barristers back for the appeal in defense of a marine-protected area. So for more information about what's happening in the British Virgin Islands, I invite you to um, check out our website, oceanriver.org, and you know, for the trials and tribulations that are being suffered by our most competent barristers from London. Uh, there's some tales of that there. Today's episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles is closer to home. Rivers are in trouble due to a one-two punch of dams and global warming, as well as a host of other issues that are challenging river wildlife. And two experts are with us who have spent more than two decades outstanding in their streams. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Don Hudson, uh, who has a P he is uh, Dr. Don Hudson, with a Ph.D., is president of Chewankee in Maine. And Don and I have worked together for many years on the executive committee of the National Marine Educators Association, where Don currently serves as treasurer. And thank goodness he continues to serve because continuity in that role is crucial for organizations like this. Don is the founder of the International Appalachian Trail and recently returned checking out future portions of the trail in Scotland. Don also serves on the Marine Green Campus Consortium. He is chair of the Allagash Wilderness Waterway Advisory Council and served on the advisory panel of, for the decommissioning of Maine Yankee from 1997 to 2005. So it's a pleasure to introduce Don, and then I will uh, tell you more about Piotr uh, later on, uh, but Piotr might uh, join us in this conversation. Um, Don, what can you tell us about the, um, the rivers flowing by your front yard there? Well, uh, thanks, Rob, for the kind introduction. Uh, you know that uh, we became the proud owners of one of the last remaining assets of the nuclear power station that was built next door to us about 30 years ago. Oh, dear. That power station is gone, um, but the one remaining asset, apart from the fuel that's still stored at Bailey Point, is a dam that was built on a nearby brook 
small stream that flows into Montsweek Bay. It's called Montsweek Brook. Uh, the estuary portion of that brook flows right past Chewankee Neck, where we have been uh, operating uh, summer programs for kids since 1918. And uh, so we've been here on the landscape a long time and paid attention to what was happening around us. And when the opportunity came to help restore the brook, uh, we accepted ownership of the dam. Now, along with that dam came um, some of the funds needed to um, study the feasibility of this passage uh, and uh, also additional funds for for removal of the dam, and we had to raise matching funds. Uh, but we now have enough money in the kitty so that we can complete the feasibility study for the brook, uh, for restoring fish, fish passage in the brook, and ultimately... Um, remove the first dam, we presume that, that the feasibility study will, will show us that the only <clears throat> viable way to restore fish passage to the, to, this, uh, to the brook will be by removal of the dam. The dam is a big one. It's 200 feet across. It's 30 feet tall. Um, it's a giant on a relatively small river. And uh, at the moment, it is blocking passage of um, well, we originally thought five species of diadromous fish. Um, we now uh, have been told by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that the brook likely uh, supports suitable salmon habitat, at least for some life stages of salmon. And since it is an estuary of the Sheepskit River, which is one of the important salmon existing salmon rivers in the state of Maine, uh, the brook restoration of the brook has attracted even more attention. As a result of that attention, uh, the Central Maine Power Company, which also owns a dam on the brook, this was the first dam built on the brook about three miles upstream from the brook that we now, uh, the dam that we now own. Uh, that dam, owned by Central Maine Power, built in 1941 to provide backup water to a small power plant built on the shores of the Sheepskit River. That dam um, is slated to become ours uh, at the end of the year. Central Maine Power. Great. Yes. That's great. Yep. We're going to be uh, having to cut soon for a break. Uh, uh, before music comes on, um, perhaps you could tell us about uh, some of the, the eels you've seen struggling along there. Oh, yeah, and, we were And we'll be back with uh, Dr. Hudson and uh, Dr. Pesarevich, um after the break. Thanks, Don. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that, that um, we, we've got a crew out, a crew of engineers and biologists who are conducting a feasibility study right now, and just a couple days ago they forwarded me pictures of small eels that during these heavy rain, <coughs> rain events of the last several weeks, which produced enough water to actually curl a quarter inch of water across the top of the dam, completely fill the impoundment. That obviously produced a stimulus of water flowing down the, the western side of the dam, and these eels climbed to within four feet of the top of the dam um, before uh, the Rain subsided and the flow of water subsided, and unfortunately, they weren't able to make it up and over. Um, but we anticipate that in a couple of years, that won't be a problem. What a lot of effort! This will really determine quitters there. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I I couldn't believe it. The picture shows these eels in a small pool in the rocks, um, having climbed um, uh, linear, probably forty-five linear feet <laughs> along the face of this, along angularly along the face of this this dam really quite amazing well thank you that, that uh, we look forward to hearing more about the uh, sheep scott river and the tributary that you're next to 
And we'll be hearing from uh, Don Hudson and Pyotr Pasarevich uh, when we return. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now. All together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. So many key world issues today relate to energy and environment. We are living in a time where world events set us up for a major transformation of our society. Enter Dr. Bernie Balkan. Dr. Balkan is Commissioner for Energy and Transport for the Sustainable Development Commission in the UK. Whether it's the financial crisis, China's transformation, the emergence of India, or Obama's ascension, put yourself on the pulse of today's changes. Listen for Environment on the Edge with Dr. Bernie Balkan, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back, and with me today is Dr. Piotr Pesarevich. And Piotr has earned a Ph.D. in Natural Resources Management and Water Engineering from the University of Agricultural Sciences in Vienna, Austria. 
Piotr is originally from Poland, and he now directs the Rushing River Institute in Amherst, Massachusetts. The Rushing River Institute is an organization that's partnered with us at the Ocean River Institute, as Piotr and I have worked together since the founding of our respective institutions. Piotr is a renowned member of the River Management Society and is well-connected with river scientists both in North America and Europe. He developed the mesohabism model, which is a multi-scale approach to in-stream habitat modeling that surveys the physical properties, biological and ecological river elements, including the fish community structures, diversity, and population dynamics. Uh, he does assessments of ecological integrity and comprehensive river management. Uh, it's really exciting the way that he focuses on the ecosystems and ecology and wildlife of rivers beyond just the physical flow characteristics and so forth. So um, Don Hudson was telling us about uh, two dams that are immediately upstream of Chewankee's uh, center, and I think Don will tell us a bit about Chewankee as well later on the show. Um, so, Don, you were telling us about the, uh, the eels climbing over and, and the need yeah. to remove the dams and uh, what kind of, um, you know, what do you see the river, the river looking like after the dams are removed? Uh, yes, we, we, the, the picture of the eels that was sent to me by one of the bi biologists recently, uh, is, that picture was taken by somebody who's on part of the uh, team conducting a feasibility study uh, for fish passage. And part of the process here of investigating uh, whether or not a dam uh, should come off a river is to conduct a feasibility study and to do it as comprehensively, comprehensively as possible. We are lucky to have a number of people in Maine advising us, uh, both with the Nature Conservancy and Trout Unlimited, as well as a couple of scientists from the University of Southern Maine who operate out of the uh, Gulf of Maine Research Institute in downtown Portland. Uh, and so with those folks advising us, the team that we have from uh, uh, Stantec Engineering, formerly Woodlot Alternatives, most people in Maine would recognize the name Woodlot Alternatives uh, as opposed to their new name. Uh, working with that team, we're, we anticipate uh, within a couple more months having um, a good uh, feasibility study uh, in hand that includes not only um, a study of the, of the physical conditions, but also of the uh, bio biological conditions both um, above and downstream of the dam to get some sense of what the possibilities for restoration will be if the dam comes down. And what are you finding? Or what are they suggesting? Well, they are finding a number of species of fish are already, to put it bluntly, banging their heads on the bottom of the dam. And this is a dam that's only been in place for 30 years. But uh, it's clear that alewives and smelt um, are making an effort uh, every uh, every breeding season to get um, to get beyond the dam. Um, they're stopped, obviously, by the foot of the dam. I, I told you the story about the eels. We now have U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service telling us that, given the the what they predict will happen for salmon populations in the sheepskin, we have to consider Montsweet Brook as potential salmon habitat. There's no evidence that salmon were there before the dams were built because no one asked the question, nobody went to look. Um, so we don't know that they were there before, but given the concentrated effort on restoring salmon to the Sheepskit River, this important uh, tributary of the Sheepskit is now included in the, in the area of overview that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is taking for that species. 
Um, we also anticipate, in addition to eels and lamprey, um, there is historically a popu- population of sea-run brook trout, which mm. the main Department of, of Marine Resources anticipates uh, it could likely be restored to the brook. It was there historically, and biologists in state agencies knew about it in that brook. So uh, there's that additional species which can benefit. And, of course, it's not just the fish. From my perspective as an environmental educator, we really need to understand the complete flow and connectivity between the ocean and the river and uh, the, the insect life that is in the river that supports these fish populations or the, the flow of nutrients um, back and forth um, you know, down the river from the uplands and back to the river in the form of the bodies of the fish who swim back to breed and things like that. It's a complex ecosystem that we're eager to understand better. And one of the important things we'll be doing that is a requirement uh, in any kind of project like this is a detailed 10-plus year monitoring program. That's great. It's important to get involved people like that. Yeah, and we'll be involving students who participate in Chiwanki programs in that in that monitoring program to help spread the knowledge of, of uh, the value of these important restorations. Let's ask Piotr to tell us a bit about um, it. it Piotr, do you think the, um, that this river would be suitable for salmon, and, and what are the kind of parameters you look for to get a good sense that uh, this might be the right place for them? Well, uh, surely, uh, and I think I would like to applaud this effort uh, because it is, uh, unfortunately, this is one of our mistakes of the past, that we did not put so much effort into planning and finding the right solution, finding what is the best for the ecosystem. And, uh, a lot of changes to our rivers have happened, as we just heard, without looking and asking what damage are we creating. And uh, um, there is no reason why we wouldn't have salmon there. There is no reason why wouldn't there be any other species except that there is a dam. Uh, and it's not the only dam. We have thousands of dams in our area, and uh, frequently we're still moving a lot very quickly to action without uh, doing a lot of planning and monitoring, planning ahead and then monitoring after. So I'm really pleased to hear about this effort. I'm pleased especially that um, not only the, the, the technical part of this removal uh, is being considered, but also the biological consequences and biological benefits that we would have will be sort of project, projected ahead of time so we know what's to bank for a buck. And Is there something wrong with just going up to a dam and removing it, like blowing it up and totally removing it and then walking away? Yeah, this happens very often. Well, more often... What's wrong with that? Well, it's wrong with the, the fact that is we frequently... First of all, we frequently don't know if this is the right decision. Yeah. First. I was working on, on one of the rivers recently in eastern Connecticut, in, in, yeah, in, in western Connecticut, actually, and in the south. And what we figured out, that the stream uh, has no pools. And the only thing that it has are small little dinky dams. Yeah. And, and sort of we started to think that maybe these dams are full, sort of have, at least in part, play a role of pools in the system. And if we would remove all the dams, we can actually mo- create more damage than, uh, than, uh, than the benefit. So hmm. we have to take a deep breath and look at, this, at the system and say, well, is this really the right thing to do? I think in this particular case, there is little doubt because it's a 
a small stream with a huge dam on it. So usually in natural systems, we didn't have such a huge concrete structures in the middle of the river. And what we need to remember, it's not only that it is limiting migration, that fish cannot go up from the ocean to the top, but also this dam is creating a huge impoundment, which is completely artificial, which is a pond. It's not the river. So alone, this fact has to be considered that when you remove the dam, you're actually creating a river back, put the river back in the place where it was, and you're just getting much longer river. And by the, alone by that, you will have much more uh, fish habitat and habitat for other species. So that's, I think that this is, uh, this is one of the very nice examples of good efforts that, that include everything. And we just hear that there was a word also about thinking about not only the structure and passage, but also about the flows, what flows we would want to have there. And I hope that the impacts of climate change uh, will be taken into consideration because specifically in these areas in the north, uh, we might be facing extinction of uh, species like salmon and, and trout because of rising temperatures. Uh, one of the documented effects of global warming uh, is that rivers are getting warmer and having less water. And by having less water, they are getting even warmer. And we have different sort of migrations. We have a lot of evidence that there might be a serious problem and specifically for fish like salmon that like cold water. Once the water is too warm, they just die. Yeah, uh, this takes a little getting used to because we're used to just thinking, well, here's my river, and if I just had salmon swimming in it, everything would be fine. But yeah. salmon, as you were saying earlier, are cold stream animals. And so we have to make sure, I guess, that the uh, water temperature is right. What kind of temperatures do they need? Well, they are usually, you know, in the range of low uh, 20 degrees Celsius. So, you know, 50, 60, uh, 70, over 70 Fahrenheit is getting, is getting a big problem. It's stressful. Uh, yes. So, and then, then they are, you know, they can get diseases, and, and basically they don't like it. No. So you, you don't like it either if it's too hot. So uh, they are not that flexible. So they are, scientists are worried about this particular uh, part of our animal life that is so sensitive to raising temperature and is our can canary in a coal mine. We yes, exactly. Of, we have a lot of the evidence, but not a lot of, or, or a lot of questions and, and sort of ideas what is going on. Some evidence still are not investing as much as we should in thinking what is that, what is that actually will happen or what is that we can do in order to prevent the damage or reduce the damage in the future, plan for the future, and that's very important. And you can find a lot of these thoughts and, and this information on one of our websites, which we call riverclimate.org. We're starting launching an action uh, for, to create a sort of a river, a Northeast River Research Authority that would investigate these issues where we can pull together scientists from different areas get the concrete plan, what is it we actually need to do to prevent the damage? Can we continue development the way we continue? Uh, or we should take a step back and start to think, what else do we need to do? And this process is very important. The process of planning, thinking ahead, is very important. We shouldn't jump to the conclusions and shouldn't move ahead and change stuff without really knowing what will be the consequences. i just give you one, one of uh, really... So almost shocking example, as we talk now about removal of the dams, 
um, and importance of this removal and feasibility and, and study of what is that we should do. At the same time, many of these old of thousands of dams are being repaired with recovery money. So it's it's totally contradictory. We are doing and there is not a lot of planning. There is just basically let's put the thing back together without thinking what would be the future consequence. And that's where why we created Russian Rivers Institute. The science is way more advanced than the practice. There is, I see a lot of um, moving to action, brick and mortar, let's build it, let's do it without doing a lot of planning. And as an engineer, I'm, I'm totally shocked that this, is, that this is happening because if we would build bridges on the same foundation, planning foundation, like we modify our riverine ecosystems, every second one would be collapsing. And that's, that's why we need to build again the, connect, the, the, the context between scientific knowledge, scientific research, the most recent tools and developments, and regulatory practice, and practical application. Our regulatory, our laws do not reflect the most recent science. We, if you, if yeah. you look into yeah. our laws, they are either about in-stream flows, how much water, or about dam removals, or about habitat, river restoration, but there are no laws that take all three part pieces of the same puzzle into account. Uh, but the scientists know that this, is, that this is very closely connected, as we just heard. It's a very complex ecosystem, and that's why we are developing very sophisticated computer models that can help us in this planning. And they are, they are not different than models in architectural engineering or planning space travels Mars, but they, they are not being very frequently used, and that's what we are trying to promote with, uh, and that's why I sort of stepped out of the academia and created Russian Rivers Institute, uh, that we will make sure that this information, the knowledge that we have, will find its application right on the ground. And also Thank you, Piotr. We're going to have to cut for an ad and uh, break, and we'll be right back with uh, Piotr and Don Hudson. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. 
The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Can we recognize our world not as a commodity, but as a sacred creation that will support us best the more creatively we live on it? Green Visions is all about how a spirit of innovation and pleasure can be brought into solving our environmental problems. Join your host, Carolyn North, each week as she talks about what citizens of the world are doing to make a difference. Heal the planet, heal yourself, and have a good time doing it. Tune in to Green Visions with Carolyn North every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back, and we're talking rivers with... Uh, Dr. Piotr Parasavich from the Russian River Institute and Don Hudson from Chewankee. And uh, Piotr was telling us about the concerns with global warming and the water temperature that salmon need being coming, becoming too high. So let's go back to Don about, you know, this river behind your, um, behind Chewankee there. Uh, you're looking at the, the heights of the dams to worry about if they're removed, you know, about the ocean coming up. And uh, you're seeing signs of, uh, of, of improving the, the water situation temperature-wise for the salmon, potential salmon. And I'm interested in mussels. Uh, I like to eat the saltwater ones, but I'm also very interested in the uh, ecology of the uh, freshwater mussels. Don, you there? Yes, I am. Um, yeah, we, we, the, the, currently the head of tide uh, is, is uh, below uh, the dam along the, along the stream. Along the axis of the stream, the, we, we think that the uh, highest tides rise uh, probably within about 100 yards of the foot of the dam. So one can anticipate that if if uh, if sea level rises, uh, even with uh, with uh, changes in climate that are already in the pipeline, um, I would anticipate that the head of tide on this brook will will move upstream some. Uh, I can't predict how much at this point. Well, without sea level rise itself, uh, the critters living above the dam aren't going to suddenly find themselves living in brackish water. No, no, no. It's fresh water. Um, the, the water is, is, uh, is not saline. It uh, only becomes saline uh, really when it passes under Route 1. If, if you find this brook on a map, you'll see that the dam is just upstream of, of Route 1 uh, in, in, uh, right on the boundary between the town of Woolwich and the town of Wiscasset, Maine. 
we do know uh, that biologists who are working on the feasibility study have told us, not only, not only have they told us about the eels and the and, uh, lamprey and, and smelt and alewives that are trying to get past the dam, they're also telling us that there are freshwater clams not only in the impoundment but also in the farther upstream uh, in, the, in the natural, still remaining natural portion of the brook. Um, and we are concerned about the fact that when we lower... Uh, when we remove the impoundment, which we will do first before the dam is removed, we'll dewater the impoundment, in part so that we can understand what the bottom looks like. And it gets at a couple of the points that Piotr was making about understanding the way the, the way the water flows through the landscape. Um, we have some guess as to what the bottom looks like and what the old stream looks like because we have access to to old uh, old maps, but. But that only gives us detail within a couple of feet, and we'd like to get detail within inches yeah. of, of, what the, of what the flow of the brook that is currently under the impoundment will become. So later on this fall, we're going to dewater that, uh, that impoundment, and when we do, we're going to take special care to note any freshwater clams, and those freshwater clams that, are, that would otherwise be stranded, we are going to have to physically uh, uh, aid in, in essentially migrating downhill to stay in what water remains behind the dam um, during this period of investigation. And thankfully, we work with a lot of people at Chihuahua, lots of kids all the time, so we'll probably have a, a small uh, army of environmental stewards out there um, helping us um, not only to, to, to um, figure out how many uh, freshwater clams we have in that impoundment. The other thing that we've been worried about in the impoundment is that uh, years back, in the 1970s, after the dam was built and the impoundment was created, fishermen moved uh, some game species into the impoundment. We know there's chain pickerel in there, not native to the brook, but are now in that in the impoundment, and a black crappie and a few other species of fish that prey on fish like trout. However, if you think about it, those fish like these kinds of pools. They live in these, in these, in these kinds of pools and small ponds and things like that. Um, and so we're planning ahead and saying, okay, if we want to create an environment which is healthy again for trout and salmon, we don't want to have these fish-eating species in there, but essentially by limiting how, much, how many pools we have that support the life of something like a chain pickerel, um, we think we're going to manage for that, for that issue fairly well. We are concerned about the temperature of the river in the future, and particularly what impacts that might have on species of fish. Um, thankfully, this river at the moment is is uh, overtopped almost along its entire length by a beautiful forest that includes such uh, um, uh, densely uh, growing species as, as uh, hemlock mixed with hardwoods that provide a very good canopy to keep the sun off the river. And I think one of the reasons that we had a sea-run brook trout population in, in this brook going back um, decades, centuries, was because of this real good cover on the brook, which helps to keep temperatures down in the summertime. And um, we can't control what's going to happen to the vegetation. And that is something that we that we really don't have any power to control. And if the canopy... You can speak away, up for the value of the canopy, and you can make yeah, that known. Yeah. No, uh, it's important to maintain the existing vegetation along that brook. I mean, this is something that river biologists and limnologists and fisheries biologists and people like Piotr have known for years. Well, Piotr's our engineer. He's actually an engineer. So is, is this right, Piotr? Are we engineering the right way? 
I think so. And then there is one more thing. It's not only the, the shading of the canopy, but it's also that uh, forests, specifically this forest and old-growth forests, are storing water, and they meter cold water into the streams in summer. Ah. That's a very important factor. So in, if we maintain healthy forests or healthy watersheds, we sort of counteracting some of the impacts of global warming. Uh, so this is one of the important part of the engineering, of the soft engineering uh, of the river. Another one might be less beautiful uh, to think of. That, and that's, that's one of the thoughts that has to come through the feasibility study. Uh, how deep is the impoundment now, and what is the temperature, what, is the, what are the temp thermal consequences of this impoundment? Does it warm the water up further downstream, or does it actually, it may actually cool the water if, there, if it has bottom release? Don, you mentioned something that it's relatively deep, right? Yes, the, the, uh, the outlet of the dam is, uh, is rarely opened, um, and so there is not much flow. The only water that flows uh, down the stream flows over the top of the vent over the top of the dam. So right, and this is warm water. In fact, at present, warm water goes over yeah. in the summer. But um, one, of the one of the considerations, just something to think about is, if we have this storage of a lot of cold water in the dam um, and we are having effects of global warming, maybe releasing cold water from this dam could be helpful in the future. Yeah. So it is something to consider within the feasibility study. I don't think it's a very beautiful solution because it requires constant maintenance, constant management, uh, and it still has a, a negative consequences on the fish habitat because you just leave this huge impoundment in place. Uh, but it has to be, you probably are thinking about it, how to um, how that to is, consider in that. That is one of the alternatives. Or not. Yeah, that's one of the alternatives that's being investigated. Um, the... During the, in the, in the, over the course of this feasibility study, there, are, uh, there will be three or four different alternative approaches um, to uh, the main question, which is restoration of fish breeding habitat. Um, and one of the alternatives um, being investigated is, is uh, some degree of, of uh, keeping some portion of the dam in place in part to maintain some of the current ecosystem conditions and weighing, weighing the benefits of that, uh, of that approach as opposed to um, what you might think of as the most drastic, which is essentially restoring, removing all the concrete and restoring the original flow and connectivity. So we will be asking the question um, uh, as, as we move ahead in the next couple of months. And I'm very happy to hear all this because this little example demonstrates how complicated all this is. That this is not only, um, you know, simply removing the dam and blow it up, but there is much more to think about. And this is only one of the restoration measures, removing dams. We have so many other things to worry and think about. How do we rate in other places where we have much more, many, many different impacts, like, uh, you know, urbanization, paving of the river, uh, lack of water flowing downstream, and this is even more complicated than what we are just talking about. 
So that's why we, I think that that's why there is this need for society to understand that it is not just a simple task, it's not just some water for some fish, but it is very sophisticated engineering that comes into play, sophisticated planning that uh, I believe is the future of engineering, of our civil engineering. It's much more complicated almost than build roads or bridges because the rivers are so complex and so irregular in shape, so dynamic, they change all the time. It's a, it's a nightmare for a modeler, the fact that it's changing it. Peter, we're out of time, and I want to thank you for um, elucidating and explaining all this to us, and I want to thank Don for um, bringing us educating us about a particular river. I think that the emphasis needs to be very local. We need to think locally, look locally, observe locally, and then we can be informed by other local stories and local case studies of, of how to act. Uh, if you, I invite you to continue the conversation online um, uh, by writing up Piotr or um, Don and myself. Um, we can uh, get those available to you, the contact information um, and you can find a lot of about information about Rushing River Institute on rushingrivers.org with the contact information. To yes. And also uh, chiwonky.org? Yes, chiwonky.org. And folks can follow me at, at WDonHudson on Twitter, and I, I'm putting up uh, tweets about uh, Monswig in particular uh, these last few weeks. So you can find me on Twitter. And if you... Uh, Become a fan of the Ocean River Institute on Twitter. Uh, you'll see Don and Piotr there as fans as well. <laughs> and we always look for volunteers, people who want to go with us to the rivers, hike the rivers, fish the rivers, and learn more about this about our wonderful environment right in front of our doors. You're here. Thank you, guys. Dave Wilmot will be with us when we get back um, after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product. Let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part and now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back, and it's my great pleasure to introduce David Wilmot of Ocean Champions. Uh, we're going to try to have a regular uh, weekly segment at the end of the program where David will come up and tell us about what's happening with ocean conservation on Capitol Hill and what some of the breaking news is that he's hearing about from, uh, from around, the, around the oceans. Uh, Dave and I go way back. Uh, I... Um, I know his, his wife, Maureen Wilmot, was um, president of National Marine Education Association uh, about the same time I was, so we've worked together on that, that group. And I was staying with the Wilmots when uh, David turned to me and said, uh, let's, uh, we, we need some kind of, uh, well, let's tell you what Ocean Champions is, but the idea came out there, and, and he'd been working on it with uh, Jack Stern and some other people putting the idea together, so... I'm kind of a co-founder of that, and uh, I continue to serve as the uh, chair of the board on Ocean Champions. Dave, what's happening? Well, Rob, thank you for having me on. This is uh, very exciting. I always love the opportunity to talk about what's happening uh, with our oceans and what's happening back in Washington, D.C. And I I thought first I I would just kind of set the stage by telling people a little bit of who we are in case they haven't heard of us before. Uh, as you alluded to, with your help, we founded Ocean Champions back in 2003, and it's when we concluded that we needed more of a political voice for the oceans, uh, a voice that would be heard in the halls of Washington, D.C., but a voice that also would help members of Congress get elected, members of Congress who cared about our oceans, that is. Because in, what it is is that protecting our oceans requires more than just working on the science and the policy of the oceans. You really have to engage in the real politics. And that's what we were all about, and that's why we founded Ocean Champions. Great. So um, you must divide your time between Washington and, and uh, Capitola, California. 
Yes, I, I do. I, I live on, on the West Coast, but the action is, is pretty much back in Washington, D.C. I mean, our oceans are under a lot of threats. I know you've been talking about uh, rivers in the, in the first part of this show, and uh, like our, our rivers, uh, our oceans have an awful lot of threats facing them. Big solutions are needed for these problems. Local efforts and state efforts and regional efforts are extremely important in this, but we decided with Ocean Champions that we really needed to work to build the leadership on the federal level if we were going to accomplish the ocean agenda that was needed. Um, you know, my, my work had really led me to this point where in the late 90s I realized that we were not going to be as successful as we needed without more political power. And the reality was is we needed to engage politically. And when I looked around, we found that the other ocean conservation groups were not fully participating politically. And what I mean by that is they were advocating and they were even lobbying their members of Congress, but they weren't involved in the electoral side where they could endorse candidates and support candidates to basically determine who the winners are. Otherwise, you're relegated to talking to the people who won without you. In our case, we help determine who those winners are, and we endorse and support only pro-ocean candidates. That's the one thing we look at, and then we help them get elected. Then we go back and begin the conversation, build the relationship to get them to lead on important efforts to save our oceans. And what was the role that uh, Leon Panetta's uh, Pew Ocean Commission played in your thinking of this organization? Leon himself played a, a very important role uh, also, but at, in the early 2000s, there were two studies being done. The Pew Ocean Commission, which was headed by Leon Panetta, the former chief of staff in the Clinton administration and the current director of the CIA, and the U.S. Ocean Commission, which was mandated by Congress and led by Admiral Watkins. And those two studies, it was the first comprehensive study that looked at what's going on with our oceans. What are the problems and what are the solutions? And while they were very different in their makeup, the recommendations that came out of these two studies were really quite, quite similar. We really were grabbing those very good recommendations and saying, this is what needs to be done. We don't need to recreate the wheel, and we don't need to create our own agenda. Here is an agenda. Let's work to accomplish some of these uh, recommendations. And Leon himself was uh, very generous with his time and expertise in, in helping guide us in, in forming Ocean Champions, and he was very supportive of the idea and very supportive of our efforts. And and uh, those who know Leon would understand uh, when I tell them that th what, what he said to us was, it's about damn time. <laughs> and that's, that's the way Leon looks at these things. Uh, very, uh, a, a very wonderful leader in the ocean realm. And uh, as I told him, I, I sleep better at night knowing he's at the head of the CIA now. Yeah. Well, it, it really meant a lot to uh, have before us the, uh, all the different complexity of issues all mapped out ahead of us. And, you know, Leon saying that... Um, you know, if we don't form this uh, political group, uh, that maybe the recommendations are just going to be left on a shelf. And uh, so often people, groups spend so much time spinning their wheels identifying issues when here we had a, a guidebook that said, you know, okay, if any politician picks up on any one of these, um, those are things we're worth following up on. So what are you finding that's breaking these days? Well, the, the climate bill, the energy climate bill, just passed the House of Representatives a few weeks ago. Uh, that has huge implications for our oceans, of course, uh, whether we're talking about acidification from the in increases in CO2 or we're talking about global warming, which, of course, is also linked to CO2 but, but is actually a temperature issue. Big implications for our oceans, a strong bill 
passed the House of Representatives. Now the action has moved over to the Senate. Um, Senator Boxer in her committee has put it on hold until after the August recess, but we're still optimistic that they can get that done uh, this year. The President and the Obama administration remain strongly supportive of this. They're trying to juggle a lot of big issues here with health care and others, um, but this is a top three priority and we, we feel good about it. Um, there are other issues that we look forward in the coming weeks to talking uh, to everyone about. There's a lot happening, and we look forward to, uh, to sharing some of that breaking news and letting people know how they can get engaged, how they can make a difference, and how they can help the oceans. Thank you, Dave. Um, we're running out of time, and uh, if people think of... Well, there comes some music, I guess. Um, so if you have questions of political nature, you can send them to me, and I'll forward them to David. Uh, about particular individual politicians. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be diving into Salem Sound with Barbara Warren, Executive Director of Salem Sound Coast Watch, and Susan Yokelson and Liz Vago from Salem Sound as well. So until next time, for Healthy Ocean Rivers, this is Rob Moyer, and I want to thank you for listening. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Drop me in the mind.